you might like to keep your pew Bibles open on page 227, because this morning we're considering the story of David and Goliath. And of course, it's one of the most famous stories in the whole Bible, and deservingly so. And of course, it's given rise to a figure of speech in English. English, Any David and Goliath tale is a tale between a hero or a heroine, and they're up against some giant, insurmountable foe of overwhelmingly greater strength and power. So let's today look at the original David and Goliath. Um, There are some things I'd like us to notice about the story. Uh, So we're on to slide number two. That's it. That's great. Um, There are some things uh, that I'd like us to notice about the story before we consider its meaning. Two things, really. The first thing to notice is that it is a long story. This is the last of three stories that introduce us to King David. And each story is a standalone story that introduces us to King David, as David, son of Jesse, as though we had not met him before. And each story introduces us to David by way of comparing him to others. But this one is by far the longest one. In fact, this story is almost three times as long as the other two combined. So why is it so long? Well, basically because this is a story really worth telling. Um, The narrator slows down. He really takes his time with this story. We get a lot of detail. A lot of detail that isn't strictly necessary from a chronicler's perspective, but that turns this story into the rippingest of all ripping yarns. And this is done so that we might get a sense of who David really is and therefore what God is up to in choosing him as Israel's second king. And we remember that our narrator's agenda is theological. Theology first, history second. And that's not to say that this story isn't historical. I'm I'm absolutely sure that it is. But it is to say that this document is something one step beyond, something greater than history. It is revelation. This is a record of what God is doing through history. So it's a really long story. The second thing I want us to notice is the shape of the story. The story begins with something bad happening. That's a good way to start a story. Something bad happens. The Philistines gather for war, assembling their war camps and their battle lines deep in Israelite territory. They're invaders bent on conquest. The heroes of our story, the people of God, go out to meet them, forming their own battle camps and their own battle lines under the leadership of Saul. But the situation quickly becomes a stalemate. Each battle line is drawn up on a hill. The Israelites are on one hill, and the Philistines are on another hill, and there is a valley between them. Now, in war, high ground is of immense strategic value. It is difficult to win a battle, it's not impossible, but it is difficult to win a battle if you're climbing up rising ground in order to engage your enemy. And it is very easy to stay in control of the battle if you control the high ground. The hills are therefore comfort zones. And what we have in between is a place of vulnerability. Neither army feels so confident as to move out of their comfort zone and into that place of vulnerability. And so we have stalemate. 
we notice that it's not the armies of Israel, but rather it is the Philistines who take the initiative in order to end the stalemate. Out comes their champion, and he gives his challenge. And boy, this guy's a freak. I mean, the Philistine's trump card. He's a game changer, three meters tall. He's not only is he incredibly big and incredibly strong, he is ultra high tech. His body covered in the latest scaled armor tunic stuff. And he's got a sword and he's got a javelin and he's got a spear. And his spear comes tipped with this new high-tech alloy that only the richest of nations can afford. It's called iron. Here we are at the close of the Bronze Age. Iron. On the Israelite side, of course, we remember that most of Saul's armies wouldn't, most of Saul's army, they wouldn't even have owned a sword. They're not coming out, they're they're coming out with agricultural implements by and large. Not a sword, not even armor. On, On hearing Goliath's challenge, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and exceedingly frightened. And this goes on for 40 days. 40 in the Bible is a symbolic number. It is the number of sufficiency. This has gone on for long enough. And then the story introduces us to David. Uh, We know already from chapter 16 that David is going to be the hero of this story. We know that already. I mean, that's kind of obvious. And David is young. Um, David is so young that he has four older brothers, not yet 20 years of age, as well as three eldest brothers who are over 20 and therefore eligible for military service. They've followed Saul into battle. Now, David is introduced carefully into this story so that we understand what he is doing there in the war camp the camp of the Israelites. He's being obedient to his father and he's conscientious and responsible with respect to every responsibility he's got. We see him slowly and carefully work through, most carefully and conscientiously, all of his responsibilities. This is a good young lad. Before David faces Goliath, he's going to suffer two tests. And most of us connect with these two tests, and we connect with them deeply. The first test comes from his eldest brother, Eliab. What does Eliab do? Well, Eliab lets rip. And we don't know why. I mean, I imagine, we're not told why, but I imagine that Eliab lets rip because basically he's, he's sweaty and fresh from running. Run away, run away! Um, from running away from, from the challenge. And it's incredibly humiliating in this deep humiliation that he shares with the rest of the army to be suddenly confronted with with your youngest brother. What are you doing here? And he lets rip. Now, Eliab doesn't know what's in David's heart. No one can know what's David's heart in David's heart except for God alone. But that doesn't stop Eliab from judging his youngest brother and he calls him evil. He calls him irresponsible, conceited, Evil and self-centered. Now, I'm pretty sure that you know what it's like to be judged. We're all judged from time to time, by which I mean somebody speaks about the thoughts and attitudes of our hearts as though they knew them and they condemn us on that basis. 
I can remember a time um, for me as a school chaplain out in the Swan Valley, I, I did something and, uh, the, and the music teacher um, judged me. Um, he, um, he accused me of acting in a manipulative and political way. Now, in actual fact, I'm as capable of that as anybody, but in that particular instance, I was not motivated by any political desire nor the wish to manipulate anyone. I had done what I had done faithfully in that particular instance. The motives of my heart were pure, and yet he judged me and condemned me as evil, and it really, really hurt. It hurts when people judge us. Our brothers and sisters are very good at it. But it hurts. What, what are we expecting? Well, we're expecting revenge here, aren't we? Tit for tat, evil for evil. What does David do? Does he defend himself? No. He dodges and avoids. David has passed this test. Now comes the second test. And that second test is when Saul tries to get David to wear his armor into battle. Will David allow himself to get all dressed up in the assumptions of others? Saul hangs on David, literally and figuratively, his own ideas as to what it means to be a warrior. And and really what, what Saul is doing is Saul is saying, okay, you can go into battle, but actually Saul is sending David in as his son, in his image and likeness, wearing his tunic and armor. And David has to find the strength of character. He has to find the integrity to say, actually, I'm sorry, but that's not who I am. That might work for you, but it's not going to work for me. And he passes that test too. He politely declines the honor of going into battle as a son of Saul. If he had done that, he would have endangered his own life. And he knew it. He had to go in as himself. And as we'll find out, that means actually going in as a son of God. And then he faces the third test, the severest test. He faces Goliath, and David triumphs. To those on the ground on that day, that victory would have looked completely impossible in prospect, but actually totally believable and obvious in retrospect. Because actually, if you're a student of ancient warfare, you know that a young boy with a sling is a dangerous thing. Um, The Benjamites practiced sling work all the time. They had an army of slingers. And the sling, of course, is the standard armament of the shepherd boy. Not just good for scaring away predators, but actually it's a fun thing to practice with over and over again through those long, boring, dull hours out in the desert with those long, dull, boring sheep. So, David, athletic, good-looking, well-beat. It's not surprising that he turns out to be a crack shot with this sling. Although we notice along the way, don't we? We notice that he chose five smooth stones, not just one. Um, he, he thought it could take up to five. After five goes, he figured he'd give up. And do you know what? Young guy, um, down in a valley, he knew he could outrun and outmaneuver this tank of a bloke. And he could have. If you're a student of ancient warfare, you probably would have put your money on David. But it was a surprise to everybody in the field that day. Well, 
like a James Bond film or like one of those James Bourne films from the, the Bourne Identity um, suite of films, this is one of those stories where actually you know the hero's going to win. You just don't know how. You know that even though James Bond is suspended in a cage above a swimming pool full of man-eating sharks, that he's not actually going to get eaten by a man-eating shark. You just don't know how he's going to win. But you know he's going to win. Same with Jason Bourne. This, we knew he's going to win. We just didn't know how. The pleasure is in seeing how. And um, this shape of this story, bad thing happens, a hero or heroine gets tested by various trials, then there's the big trial and they're victorious, and they're victorious in a way that was, we'd never foreseen in prospect, but in retrospect it's entirely obvious, this is the shape of every James Bond film, and it's also the shape of every Jane Austen novel. Sense and sensibility, pride and prejudice, persuasion. I mean, you know she's going to end up with him. We just have to read through 12 chapters to get to the point where he ends up, she ends up with him. And along the way, Mansfield Park, sense and sensibility, she is tested. She is tested by injustice and by the false assumptions of others. But she remains true to her principles, which are godly and right. And in the end, she prevails. And she prevails like the closing scene of Sense and Sensibility where Mr. Edward Ferris comes in and we all think he's gotten married. And so he can never marry Miss Dashwood. But, but, but it turns out that he's not married. And none of us saw it coming, but actually once we hear it, it's obvious. And we all burst into tears, or at least I do, even though I've seen it hundreds of times. It's the genius of Jane Austen, and she's just copying God here. But um, you know, it's it's we didn't see it in prospect, but in retrospect, it's obvious. And she she triumphs. This is the shape of all good stories. So that's two things to notice about um, this story. Firstly, it's long. Secondly, it is shaped and molded so as to be the rippingest of ripping yarns. What does the story mean? Well, there are three things I'd like to talk about this morning. Faith, leadership, and identity. Faith, the final frontier. It's a joke for all the Star Trek fans amongst us. Um, Faith, this is a story about faith. Um, Last week I spoke about Saul and quite a bit about his background and his character and his kingship. And I said that Saul's fundamental problem... The thing that proved to be the undoing of his career and the unraveling of his life was that he never really got faith. He never really understood what it meant to trust God and to stand on his word. David does. So in addition to simply trusting God, this is a faith issue because it is about trusting God and believing what God has had to say. David believes in God's word, and because of that, he clearly sees that Goliath is opposing God's purpose in the world when he opposes the armies of Israel. He is in opposition to God's saving work in the world. The goal of the Philistines, of course, was to remove the nation of Israel so that they might possess the land. And on a political, economic basis, you know, that's obvious. That's, that's, how, that's how empires grow. But in spiritual terms, and they didn't know this, they were unwitting, but it doesn't make them, doesn't make them innocent. In spiritual terms, that would have meant removing from planet Earth the knowledge of Yahweh, the knowledge of the Lord. And if that had happened, nobody could have been saved. True knowledge of God would have gone extinct. 
So David sees Goliath as an affront to God's war on evil. And therefore the battle is God's and the victory is assured. David understands that Goliath, while being an enemy vastly more powerful than any other warrior on the field of battle that day, was nevertheless a puny wimp compared to God. And it was because of faith, David has this faith-soaked imagination. And he has this particular style of imagination that the Hebrews always commend as wise. And it is an analogical imagination. He wasn't boasting to Saul when he said those things about bears and lions. He got in his imagination the connection between a situation he was already familiar with, rescuing sheep from wild animals, to one he had no experience of, hand-to-hand combat with Philistines. But by analogy, he'd been able to kill the bear and the lion, he'd be able to kill Goliath. God had looked after me in this situation. God will look after me in that situation. It all turned out fine back then. It's going to all turn fine out today. I depended upon God and God is dependable. God will still be dependable today. So in David's faith-soaked imagination, Goliath is not a super conqueror. He's vermin. He's a pest. To be eradicated. David's faith is a recognition that God is totally dependable. And that he is totally dependent upon him. Two things. I am totally dependent upon God. But that's okay because God is totally dependable. I found God trustworthy in the past. I'll find him trustworthy in the future. So David realizes he doesn't need to kill Goliath. God will do that. It's David who selects the smooth stone and launches it. But it's God who directs its path. And it is the Lord who gives David the victory. David's faith gives him an intuitive feel for something that is often a complete mystery to others. And that is that It is not by weapons that war war will be won, for the battle is the Lord's. And yet it is by weapons that the war will be won, because the battle is the Lord's. David acts because he recognizes that he is totally dependent upon God and that God is totally dependable. This is faith. It allows David to leave a comfort zone and enter into a place of extreme vulnerability. And there is no ministry except in places of extreme vulnerability. This is a story about faith. It's also a story about leadership. And the whole point is this this is about David's God-given, Holy Spirit-inspired genius for leadership. You see, at the start of this story, we see the men of Israel and they're following Saul. And they're following Saul physically and they're following Saul emotionally. They have physically followed Saul into battle. They are his disciples. But emotionally, they also take their lead from Saul. If Saul is frightened, they're frightened. Verse 11, in response to Goliath's taunts, Saul was dismayed and terrified. And if Saul, the commander-in-chief of Israel's armed forces, was dismayed and terrified, then so are his men. 
And you know what? This is what God still does. And he does it in every human institution. The character and the personality of any human organization is always quickly conformed to the character and personality of the key leader. And it doesn't matter what that organization is. And this ought to give us pause for thought, especially um, for us, for any of us, all of us, who in one way or another are, are, are called to leadership within organizations, be them companies, branches, clubs, Bible studies, churches, gangs, or families. God quickly conforms the character and the personality of the organization to the key leader of the organization. Saul's attempt at leadership is reported to us indirectly. We hear about it on the grapevine. Saul's attempt at breaking stalemate is to offer this reward. And he offers great riches, exemption from taxes, and his own daughter in marriage, making the potential victor possible heir to the throne, in line for the royal throne. This reward is huge. In fact, it's fantastical. But because the reward is so big, it makes the danger look even bigger. Saul's attempt to motivate his soldiers actually makes them more afraid, not less. Saul's exaggerated reward has exaggerated the danger, filling the imaginations of his men with catastrophic fantasies of what Saul might do to them if he goes anywhere near them. These men don't have faith-soaked imagination. They have Goliath-soaked nightmares. Saul's attempt at leadership has been counterproductive. David, on the other hand, he's, he's not interested in material or economic realities. The reality he's interested in is the theological one. He sees this situation as so one-sided in terms of real power that it's comic. <laughs> Who is this? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? It's a joke. He treats Goliath repeatedly with contempt and his refusal to be afraid brings him speedily to Saul's attention. And what we notice at the end of this story is that the armed forces of Israel have stopped following Saul and started following David. David didn't ask them to do this. He was just standing still in a valley holding up a severed head. But the men of Israel and Judah, having seen David's victory and seeing the Philistines starting to run, run away, run away, they surged forward with a shout and they pursued the Philistines right out of Israelite territory all the way back into Philistine heartland. And what are they doing? They are copying David physically, running forward, killing Philistines. And they are copying David emotionally full of courage, taking the initiative, acting out their faith, that God was actually with them and would give them the victory. They've become David followers. David never tried to be a leader. He just ran forward and others followed. And this is the genius of true leadership. Others instinctively follow. And um, one of the great things about this church uh, St. Barnabas, we've, we've got men and women who have a spirit-given genius for leadership such that others want to do what they're doing because they're doing it. And we have many such leaders here at St. Barnabas. Praise God. I'm not one of them. That's, that doesn't matter. I don't have to be. 
I'm, I'm a teacher, I'm a prayer, I do other things. But what that means for us as a community is that when it comes to defeating our Goliaths, we need to make sure that we put our Davids front and center. Uh, following my uh, recent uh, cancer diagnosis, I met with both Saul's and David's. Uh, my wife, Jo, is a David. She kept telling me it's going to be all right. And when she says that, I know that she believes it. And you know what? When Joe tells me that, I believe her too. If Joe says it, it's right. And I believe it. When Joe tells me that everything is going to be all right, I know it's true. And there are many Davids at St. Barnabas, and my wife is one of them. And this is a good place. This church is a good place to learn about leadership. I also encountered quite a few souls. Um, They told me how truly sorry they were to hear of my diagnosis. They were full of fear. And boy, was I full of fear after talking to them. I was touched by their concern. And I received what they were offering, which was their love for me and their concern for my welfare. But I tell you what, my enemy grew even stronger and even more frightening after spending time with them. And after a while, I found myself either wanting to avoid them or change the topic of conversation real fast. And I make this point, I make this sensitive point. I want to tell you a few things. Firstly, the souls that I have in mind, none of them go to St. Barnabas. I'm not talking about you. Um, The souls that I have in mind are godly Christians. They love me. And I love them, and they love the Lord. I simply make this point because this experience has given me a sense of what it's like to be on the receiving end of David-like ministry and Saul-like ministry, and I don't want that make that mistake again. So if I've exercised a Saul-like ministry in your life and enlarged your enemies, I do beg your forgiveness and the forgiveness of God. All of us should look at David today and wonder. This is a story about leadership. It's also a story about identity. You may have noticed that um, words about David's dad bookend David's activity. In other words, we've got when David is introduced, verses 12 to 19, there are lots of words about David's dad, Jesse the Ephrathite from Bethlehem, a man now too old to either fight or farm, but he has eight sons, the oldest of which are fighting for their country. The youngest is shepherd. And the story ends with another conversation about David's dad, verses 55 to 58. Saul asks Abner, his commander, whose son David is, and this is an odd question to ask, if we take on face value story two in the previous chapter, um, actually one of Saul's servants introduced David to Saul as Jesse's son and they got to know each other and Saul really liked him. And it's a really odd question to ask because it suggests that Saul has forgotten what happened five minutes ago when David came up to him and they had a conversation about bears and lions. So it's a really odd question to ask. But indeed, the whole story concludes with David's own answer to the question, I am the son of your servant Jesse of Bethlehem. Why is this question, whose son is he? Why is this question so important? What does it matter who David's dad is? And the answer is this. In ancient Israel, 
sons were the image and likeness, the representative of their fathers. Saul was once mocked by the question, and who is his father? You're telling me Saul is a prophet? Is his father a prophet? Huh? And who is his father? With that question, Saul was mocked. A son shows the world what his father is like. Um, to us, if we wanted to know what somebody was like, we'd say, have you got a photo? And we'd whip out our iPhones and say, oh, there's a photo of my cat. Now you know what my cat is like. But a photo wouldn't cut it for these guys. What's his appearance got to do anything? The question is, who is his father? David has just done something absolutely astonishing. The natural question to an Israelite mind would have been, and who is his father? In other words, who is this guy? But what we, as readers of the Bible, what we know is that the answer, David is the, is the, David's father is Jesse of Bethlehem, we know that actually that doesn't answer the question. David actually is God's son. He, he's been filled with the Holy Spirit. He's been anointed. And the Hebrew word for anointed one is Messiah. And the Greek word for, for anointed one is Christ. God's promise to all of his messiahs, to his anointed ones, found in several places in the Old Testament, God's promise to his anointed ones is essentially this, you are my son, I am your father. You will go out in my image and likeness, and I will back you up. The real solution to this puzzle is not that David is Jesse's son, but that he is a son of the Most High God. So this is a story about faith, about leadership, and about identity. Lastly, how do we apply this to our own lives? What are the connects and disconnects? Well, the most obvious disconnect is that as God's people, our enemies aren't flesh and blood. I know as Christians we are awfully slow to believe this and to understand this, but actually we don't need to attack people in Jesus' name. Our enemies are never flesh and blood. But David was right to cut off Goliath's head. This was true to his call and to the nature of the covenant that God had with his people under Moses. David was acting so as to be the savior of God's people, saving God's people from their enemy. We don't belong to God in that way, not through the Mosaic covenant, but rather through the covenant made through Jesus Christ. And it is a different covenant. It is a better one with a different view of salvation. What has Jesus saved us from? Jesus has saved us from eternal condemnation, from sin, death, and judgment. And he saved us from sin, death, and judgment by going to the cross on our behalf, by acting as our savior, by saving God's people from their enemy. That's the disconnect. What connects us to this story? Well, faith is still faith, and this is faith. Yes, actually, most of the time, I am powerless in comparison with my enemies. But next to God, my worst enemies are just puny wimps. Who are my enemies? Well, my enemies are the things that work so as to oppose God's saving purpose in my life and in the world. But my God is infinitely bigger than them. All I need to do is to trust God and to stand on his worth. That's faith. Trusting God 
and believing what he's had to say. And when I do that, I'm either going to do nothing when everyone around me is in a frantic, uh, frantic frothing at the mouth, self, self, self-saving activity. I'm going to do nothing when everybody else around me is panicking. Or I'm going to do something when everybody else around me is doing nothing. But faith, that is trusting God and believing its word, faith is always demonstrable. It will make us different. People who have their faith in Christ do the other thing. Move in the opposing spirit. Go against the flow. Move out of their comfort zones into extreme vulnerability and depend upon God to back them up because they know that God is always totally dependable. This is a story about faith and we are as capable of it as David. Leadership is still leadership. This um, story's first function was to inspire Israelites to put their trust in David as God's anointed king, leader, and savior of Israel. David's spirit-given genius for leadership was the direct result of his faith in God. And back then, the people were right. And we're going to see this as the story unfolds. They were right to offer David their, their allegiance, their obedience, and their devotion. And this story now points us to Jesus. You see, David is the type, the model, the example offered to us to point us to Jesus. Jesus is the true son of David, the true son of God, the true king of Israel. Not only God's Messiah or Christ in human terms, but eternally so, God's eternal son, the one who perfectly shows us in all he said and did, who perfectly shows us what his Father in heaven is like. And you know what? As members of his church, we follow him physically and we follow him emotionally. We fight what he fights. We hate what he hates. We believe what he believes. We go where he already is, for he is leading us. And that means that meeting us ought to be just like meeting him. Because God in heaven is our father too. Yes, for you and for me, when we believe in Jesus, whether Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, when we believe in Jesus, we too are sons of God. Representatives. We go and he will back us up. So we've come full circle. Identity is still identity. Jesus shows us God in order that we might follow him and in following him be like him. I'd like to finish this sermon with the words of Saul from verse 37. The Lord be with you. 